I'll give you a story of my own piracy. I was driving this million dollar boat. It was this 40 foot power boat. We're flying through the harbor. I saw a lot of my friends, they finished the AT. They went back to kind of the same job, worked, 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 under the impression that they were gonna quit, do the PCT, which they did, and then they would do the CDT, and then all of a sudden they're back to the same place that they were before. Well, communication is huge no matter what, and I try to preach it all the time. When you live these extreme lifestyles, it's very easy to think that you're a singular individual, that you don't need others, and you're somehow disconnected from society, but it is in an exceptionally long walk. You got to really have a reason to be out there if you're going to attempt such a thing. And I go to jump on this other rock and I hear the metallic rattle of a snake. And I'm like, oh crap, I step back, almost hit the girl into a pit of snakes behind me. But through the whole course of that six month journey, you've come to realize that you hate your job. You don't want to be going to the same place. But a lot of people will fall into the trap of going back to the same job because it is relatively easy to do. Having a story is just so valuable. Welcome to the Winging It Travel podcast with me, James Hammond, where every Monday I'll be joined by guests to talk about their travel stories, travel tips, backpacking advice, and so much more. Right now, I'm taking the podcast on the road traveling with me. So tune in every week for short form episodes detailing all my travels alongside my Monday guest episode. Are you a backpacker, traveller, gap year student, or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. This is a casual, informative podcast designed for you to inspire you to travel. There'll be stories to tell, tips to share, and experiences to inspire. Welcome to the show. Let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode, where I'm joined by Meryl Charette, who is an avid traveller, hiker, podcast producer, marine consultant, and CEO of Shipshape and Meter. Meryl is currently living on a sailboat, which has been doing that for the last five years. He's been a key character in a book relating to him through hiking the Appalachian Trail. And he's also the host of Shipshape Podcast. I'm keen to hear his thoughts on the term winging it. Welcome to the show, Meryl. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty good. Glad to have you here. Where are you currently based? So I am currently based in Boston, Massachusetts, where I've been living on a sailboat in Boston Harbor for the past five years. Nice. And Boston Harbor, is there a reason for that? I had originally come up to go to law school, ended up dropping out of law school and yeah. starting the whole living on a boat career. So it was kind of inevitable that my extremes would eventually lead me to this whole minimalism living on a boat thing. Nice. Got a random question for you then. So if you're living on a boat right now or you want to, is there certain ports in america that are better than others like or is there like certain rules where you can't go to certain ports and live like is there any like rules like that so the thing about being on a boat and traveling is that you can anchor for free anywhere right. you just need to find an anchorage so it can make it quite an affordable way of traveling in the same time you can also grab dock space which does come with a price tag and the ports in America, for instance, are very connected with the overall wealth of the community. So if you're going to a wealthy area, 
it's going to have a nice marina if you're going to poor places yeah okay and i've got some questions actually i've not actually written them down on the notes so these might be a bit random just about boat life in general um just logistics i'm thinking internet slash tv is that pretty easy to set up so it depends on to what extreme you're living on a boat everyone's heard the houseboat stories but there's also a group of people that are cruisers that sail full time when it comes to the internet it can be a little bit tricky the whole starlink thing that's going on right now i'm starting to see a lot of boats use that i'm not too sure on how well it's doing but for the most part if you time up where you anchor and where you are with a hot spot you can figure it out next question is for an address do you still need to have like a PO box on land or can you have your address fully on a boat? So I'm the type of boater that's like the champagne boater. So I'll go out and sail around the New England area. I'm not yeah. doing any big trips. So I have a home base and I get all my mail shipped to that marina. The marina has like a whole office with everyone's name in it. Oh, wow. This is like a whole new world. <laughs> yeah, I know nothing about it. Yeah, it's mental. Yeah, there's certainly a decent population of people that live on boats, and you would never expect it. Why did you choose to live on a boat? There was something about the ocean or the water that just created the mystical idea of what it could actually be like. And let me tell you, it ended up being that way. Okay. And I'll tell you one thing I would probably appreciate on a boat is maybe the silence. I live in an apartment block here, right? So I can hear both next doors, whether it's daytime, nighttime's not too bad, but there is something going on. And I do get a bit annoyed at that. Even if you're a house and you've got a next door neighbor, it's going to be slightly noisy. But I was like, oh, is there anywhere that's silent? Unless you've got a big house detached and you've got a lot of money, maybe a boat might be the next option. Uh, yeah, I'd say that the boat is probably a good option for silence. Even though I'm in Boston Harbor, which is a pretty big harbor yeah. in the city, you don't even realize that you're in the city. Oh, mental. That's crazy. Another question I thought of as well, then. Busy port. Do boats come in at like early hours, 1 and 2 a.m.? Like, is there a rule where they're supposed to keep the noise down, if you like, but, you know, respect people who are living there? Well, there's all sorts of regulations within the harbor itself that ships can't be flying through the harbor. <laughs> so you, you yeah. barely hear anything. I do hear, because I'm, I live on a sailboat, I do hear a propeller of a huge tanker ship coming in. As the, the, the blades turn on it, it creates this cavitation, which makes this noise. It's pretty wild. Okay, that's awesome. And a sailboat, <laughs> I'm absolutely in the dark here. Is there a difference between a sailboat and maybe another type of boat that someone would live on? Like, Is there different types of boats? So the type of boats that people live on can either be a houseboat which is yeah. more of a stationary type thing yeah then you have the power boats which you get certainly a decent amount of room and the boat is able to travel places but the cost of fuel is a handicap because those engines definitely do guzzle up a, a ton of fuel mm. and then you have the sailboat which is the slowest but it's relatively cost efficient to go, but the space is also pretty small too. Mm. And what is the space like from 
your living space, if you like? I have two bedrooms. I have a bathroom with a walk-in shower, oven, sink, refrigerator, all of, I got everything. I'd say it's probably around 500 square feet inside the cabin. And then on the deck, it's about 700 square feet. I got like outdoor seating, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's doable. 100%. Yeah, yeah. This might be a weird question. Do you have a car? Like just park on the mainland? Yes, I got a car. Got a car, got a motorcycle. Yeah. Only thing I don't have is a regular bicycle. Got it. Okay. And you're in Boston. Someone quoted me last week on my podcast that if you're American, you should go to Boston just to learn a bit of history about the place in terms of the country. What's your thoughts on Boston? Well, Boston is certainly the birthplace of uh, the revolution. So you got that. Yeah. There's tons of uh, historic things, which just makes the bars just a little bit cooler. Okay. And a bit of like old buildings there, right? Like there are some of those about, right? Not too new. Yeah, it's certainly one of the only places around that'll have really old buildings. And there's history on every single block, either some revolutionary thing or some guy got into a tavern brawl and shot this <laughs> other guy there. <laughs> nice. Okay, and where did you grow up originally in the US? So I was originally from central Massachusetts, so not Boston, but I went to four different high schools. So I actually kind of traveled a little bit through Massachusetts and Maine going to schools, eventually went to college in Memphis, Tennessee. So within the United States, I've done a little bit of traveling. Is that following your parents because you're moving around different high schools? Is that the reason? I was just pretty good at sports at one point in my life. And oh really? Getting recruited out to different schools. Oh wow! What sports were you good at back in the day? So lacrosse. Have you ever heard of it? Do you know what? It's actually quite big here, lacrosse in Vancouver. Yeah, it's it's one of the cheapest sports to go and see, but never seen it. Don't even know really what's going on. I know like basic stuff, but like nothing, nothing genuine. Like. Yeah, you got the whole box lacrosse up in Canada. Mm. Yeah, and any other sports apart from lacrosse? Well, that's really about it. Okay. Uh, just lacrosse. Yeah, yeah. And also, Boston is known for the Boston Celtics, right? If you're a basketball fan, which I'm slightly a basketball fan. So uh, I do know that. Well, New England has literally all the best teams. You got the Celtics, you got the Bruins, you got the Patriots. Patriots, yeah. So, I mean, what place? Boston is number one. <laughs> New England is an awesome place to go and visit, right? Especially this time of year in the autumn, maybe. Well, by this point, it's more cold and all the okay. leaves are off the trees. But yeah. New England is most definitely known for its beauty. You have Maine, which is internationally known. And uh, obviously Boston, you got Rhode Island, that's beautiful coastline. Mm. The rest of the country, you know, doesn't really compare. <laughs> it's actually a bit of a slight dream of mine to visit. And hopefully we will do next year New England. I think we're going to go across then down through Canada, through Maine, right? I think travelers kind of see those like pictures on Instagram or social media where it's those like rolling hills, uh, all different colors in the fall. I think that's what people imagine when you're driving through those little towns and, and those awesome roads. For sure, if you're going in the fall. So you got to time it up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you are in Marine 
sort of career field. So tell us about that. How did you get into that area? I know one person at home who's a marine biologist. Um, that's pretty much about it. So it's quite a unique field. So how did you get interested in that? I kind of stumbled into it for the most part. Pretty much everyone in marine, if you ever talk to anyone that's in it, their plan was never to actually be in it. They just <laughs> they just stumbled into it. And that's very much the same thing. So when I started living on the boat, I was concerned that I was going to be the only person that actually lived on a boat because mm. I've never even heard of too many people that did it and all this other yeah. type of stuff. So the first guy I meet ends up being my business partner. And the thing about the Appalachian Trail, the thing about living on a boat is that the community is quite strong. And I feel that a lot of people that live a normal lifestyle of the home or whatnot, the condo, that the community structure really doesn't exist like it does in the extremes. Mm. So from that exposure and just meeting people, I eventually built a general contracting company for yacht repair in Boston. And then kind of through that, realizing that I did want to travel and I do want to be able to go wherever I want, realize that I got to use technology in order to do that. So I transitioned from what I was doing as a general contractor to creating a web platform that essentially does what I do. It connects boat owners and yacht owners to service providers, the people that work on boats. And right now we're the National Directory of Marine Repair and Refit. Then I have several other companies, but everything was moving towards the ability to be able to work remote, which is what mm -hmm. everyone kind of strives for. And with that, if you find a niche, there is a lot of opportunity to be able to work remote. I think that's the thing, right? The niche. I think 100% I want to work remote and not be fixated to a place, if you like. As always, it's the, the key question is like, how can I do it? What is the niche? What can I do that brings an income where I don't have to be in one place at a time? It's quite a hard question. I think a lot of people are trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's certainly a difficult one to do. I was trying to figure that out for the longest time. But there's... <laughs> There's so many jobs out there that no one would ever even realize existed that allow for you to have like the travel opportunity. It requires some dedicated effort to find, mm. but they're out there. Yeah, especially more now though, right? After COVID, even normal jobs are becoming remote, right? We don't have to go into the office. I don't know how true that is. From okay. What I've seen in, in Boston is that during COVID, obviously a lot of people were remote, but then the office, like all these major companies were essentially that you had to at least come in once a week to yeah, the office. Same, same as me. So it just locks you up. And at the, during COVID, I went sailing just nonstop with the, the girlfriend at the time. And then as soon as the office was like, you got to come in once a week, all the sailing dreams were dashed. I was like, oh, I think I got to move on. You are right, though. It just takes one day a week and you're still locked in. Yeah, I've not even thought about that, actually. Yeah. I think a lot of people here in Vancouver, they they realized that they can do a fully remote job 
for a company over east, right? Toronto way, Montreal, and get paid a little bit more. So I think they're starting to realize that they can still do that at home. But yeah, I don't know many people who are fully remote. It is one day a week, the hybrid model, if you like. I guess it comes down to just starting your own company, right? I think it's the only way. Whether that is, is another question. But I think if you want full autonomy and mobility, I think it has to be your own thing. I can't see any other way. Unless you're rich, you have to work. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. But what do you think is the future of work? Do you think they will go to fully remote or do you think they'll just sort of filter back to what it was before COVID? They'll fill it back. There's you, you hear a lot about the working remote, but on the flip side, you also hear a lot of people that had a community when they were at work and want that back. So yeah, who really knows what's going to happen, but I bet there it'll be a hybrid model. That's likely the future. Yeah. Cause I read something about this whole situation where for introverts, it is a great time. <laughs> you don't have to go in because the modern workplace of five days a week, that's kind of built really for extroverts. You've got to interact all day, every day. You've got to obviously do your work. It's built for extroverts, right? So if you're introverted, it's probably a bit of an extra stress to go in. But when COVID happened, it's like, oh, great. I don't have to go in. I can stay at home. So for those people, it was great. But I think... Yeah, those people probably leave if they can find jobs that are fully remote because they don't want to go back in five days a week. For sure. I've also met a ton of people along the way who have been in that scenario where they were like introverts and they're like, I'm going to go and I'm just going to work on the boat and I'll be able to sail and all this other type of stuff. But they end up being so busy Monday through Friday <laughs> that they're like, oh, I can't really sail. That's where you got to be strong, isn't it? Yeah, there's pros and cons. I guess people do become more busier at home because they're not distracted, if you if you like, at the workplace. Do you miss like any part of not being on the boat? You know, like the normal sort of like condo life, if you like. The only thing that I miss of living on land is a dishwasher. Oh, only. Dream. That is a dream, isn't it? I think it's the number one appliance you need. <laughs> it's certainly so much <laughs> Yeah, as a man, I'm just like, oh, these dishes, I just can't ever see. They just always pile up. They're impossible to deal with. My stress level is directly correlated to if there's anything in the sink. I hear you. I'm the same as you on that. Another good point you made earlier about the, the condo life, about the community aspect, where there's not really any, if I'm honest. I wonder, why is that? Like, why is that a thing? Do you think in the previous days in years that like it would have been a more of a communal aspect or has it just always been like this do you think because i don't know anyone in this condo building as like i don't know 25 30 flats i think that technology plays a role in why we are the way we are today and i say that because past communities didn't really grow up with the ability to instantly be connected globally to anyone. True. And so it was very easy to tell where you fit in within your community, which created a kind of a reason for people to go and meet everyone else within the community. But now if you can instantly connect with anyone, you don't really need 
to rely on the community for anything, why mm. would you necessarily want to meet anyone? And is that good or bad thing? Oh, it's certainly an awful thing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely terrible. Communication is just declining yeah. quite rapidly. I Because I'm in the whole business scene and I do go to networking events quite often. It's kind of like one of my side hobbies to meet new people, try to get off the boat a little bit. Yeah. And the communication skills pre-COVID and post-COVID substantially different. And being in the boating industry, we increased how much we sold everything. Like boat boats went through the roof. Mm. Everyone was trying to be outdoors. Everyone was boating all the time. It was like COVID never even happened for me at wow. all. Wow. And so coming into post-COVID events and talking to people, I have about two-year extra communication skills from everyone else. Yeah, and I think I've noticed that myself, you know, like pre-COVID, that's such a different world, but like post-COVID, like we had a um, sort of after-work drink the other day and it's tough. <laughs> it's almost like I've forgotten how to communicate sometimes in person. Like, what do you talk about all the time? <laughs> Did I struggle with it a little bit? And I never have done before. So it's an interesting dynamic. But also the technology doesn't help you, right? Because you don't have to do anything physically anymore. It's weird, isn't it? Because sometimes you can go to like a social setting, not say too much, but then you could like just message them on, on your phone and say more in that than you did in person. It's a strange, strange world. Yeah, certainly. And one of the things about it is, I mean, your whole podcast is about traveling, right? So yeah. the people that do go out and live a slightly more difficult life of exploring the world and meeting all these different cultures. Those are the type of people that have stories to tell. Yes. And so having a story is just so valuable that people don't even realize to what extent you can use a story to like get new job positions or make friends with people. So the people that are going out traveling and experiencing are going to be way better off than the people that are stuck inside calling Uber Eats for <laughs> all their meals. You're right. And not to be too harsh on the people who don't go traveling, but they, in comparison, don't do that much, right? Because like, you're right. If you're going traveling and you're dotting about to different states or different parts of the world, you've got a story to tell. Like, There's going to be some stuff that you've got up to and people that you've met. But if you're just a generic Joe, Monday to Friday, nine to five, and uh, you probably watch a bit of sport, there's not too much to go with there, is there? Certainly not. <laughs> That's why the podcast is easier. Yeah, you're right. I do uh, other podcasts where I get interviewed and it's on communication. And one okay. of the things that I, I tell them is that go out and have some ex crazy experiences so you can tell a good story. Yes. Yeah. And I miss that as well. I miss that, the whole experience of getting experiences, meeting different people, different cultures, um, just doing different things. I kind of miss that really a little bit. So that's hence why I think we're going to do a bit more travel next year. But it's just been culminating into this sort of like COVID, post-COVID world. Don't get old on me, James. <laughs> and growing up, did you have much travel in your life? I know you, you're a recruit for sports, but did you dot around the US like on holiday or...? 
on vacation? Not really. My dad was a consultant for IBM and traveled to pretty much every single continent and traveled to hundreds of countries. Wow. But we never did much of any of that. We went up to this one spot in Bar Harbor, Maine every year, and that was the extent of our traveling. Certainly, I was asked, my parents were like, oh, would you want to go to Europe or maybe see Disneyland? And at the time, I was like, why would I do that? You know, <laughs> did your dad like do leisure stuff as well as business? Just straight business. Wow. That's a missed opportunity, isn't it? Just one, just have one extra day where you just visit the, the town or the city you're in or the country, right? I'm sure he did that. He just never told me any of those stories. <laughs> Fair. Okay. <laughs> Because I interviewed someone who does a podcast about business travel and his whole podcast premise is he wants to meet like, you know, like high performing business people. They can be like artists as well, musicians. And it's not really about what they do. It's about when they're off on tour or on business, what do they do when they're there? That's not work. You know, do they check out for a day? Do they stay an extra bit of time? Uh, and how do they marry that with their work? It's quite an interesting dynamic. Well, I am sure that's probably why my dad hated his job. Oh, really? You traveling when you're younger, did it inspire you that you want to be on water and not on land? Like, where did that transition come into place? I've been just jumping from one drama to the next drama. I haven't done any traveling, not from any particular reason to other countries, but I will say that next year... I'm going to be going through Europe. Just started dating this German girl. Yeah. So I am pretty much obligated to go to Germany and Africa. So <laughs> next year, going to be doing a tour through Europe, get to see all the different cultures. I'll dress up as much of an American as I possibly can. <laughs> an American flag shirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, see how I'm received by the general population. Yeah, be fine. You'll be right. You don't see that many Americans traveling for leisure, so you might be quite unique in that sense. Well, I'm one of the things that I definitely am interested in seeing is all the old architecture of all of those countries. Because in the United States, everything pretty much starts at the 1600s. Mm -hmm. That's the farthest thing that you can find. So going over to Europe and being around that type of architecture, I think will be quite fascinating. Any like specific countries or places that you really want to go to that's like almost at the top of your list? Well, conveniently, I really wanted to go to Germany. That was number one on my list. Yeah. And then I wanted to check out the coast of Germany. But luckily, the girlfriend's dad has a 60 foot boat on the coast oh. of Germany. So that suits Perfect. you quite well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've not got too much of the coast up north. It's like a little bit. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't think many people go to Germany to see that. I think they go more like south, like to Bavaria or to the like Berlin, for example. So that'd be quite interesting. I would have loved to get into Russia, but I don't think you can really do that these days. Yeah, that would be slightly tricky. Yeah, I think they've got their <laughs> I don't want to underestimate it. They've got their issues. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's great. So you're going to go to Europe. Um, are you going to jump on the train? Because you can train through Europe, right? I'll do something, right? Isn't that where Gandhi came up with his preeminent work on the train through Europe? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> but it sounded like it would be a cool thing to do. When you're growing up in the US, did you have many trips like on the water 
hence what you do now? Well, the first time I had ever even camped was the first day I was hiking the Appalachian Trail. Mm. The first day I had ever been on a boat in my entire life was the day I had got the boat. So, oh, wow. Okay. I, I generally do things where I'm starting at ground zero. So, perfect timing to do this whole traveling to Europe, right? I <laughs> yeah. go from nothing to a lot. Oh, that's great. You just like jump in something, no experience in doing it to see how it goes. That's quite brave. I guess it's just a level of risk, right? Yeah. And what it comes down to is how risky you want to be. Starting a business is risky. Starting yeah. a podcast can be risky. Traveling is risky. So at what extent are you willing to risk things? It depends on every person. Do you think a lot of people avoid risk most of the time? Oh, for sure. Everyone is. We're like naturally inclined as human beings to avoid things that have the potential to make us lesser within the community or risk life and limb and the amount of money that you have yeah everyone avoids risk I, that's probably where anxiety comes from and mm. all those other emotions that people have yeah i think podcast is an interesting one isn't it because a lot of people probably got a story to tell something right and they probably want to talk to someone or talk to random people and meet people or have a co-host where they discuss issues but they don't right but there's also risk that they avoid but there's also the hard work that goes alongside it right we've, we've all thought of great ideas aren't we most people don't actually action on them so it's quite interesting where you've got the risk element but also am i going to go into it like fully into it and put 100 percent in yeah what i tell people is you got to find a passion honestly yeah. and and people throw passion out there like this loaded word yeah without really yeah. understanding the meaning behind it and so how it's come to affect me, it's like I can pretty much do this whole remote life thing because I found a passion and I became an expert in it. And because on my podcast, I interview like the leaders of all the different segments of Marine, their big thing is find a passion, become an expert and you're good. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do struggle to find that passion, right? Like, that might take decades certainly and it takes like active looking and but with everything the easy way is not necessarily the the fastest way or the best way to go and putting yourself in comfortable positions i really think that you get to kind of learn something about yourself that will dramatically affect what you decide to pursue in your life yeah and do you think like let's say someone looks at you and you, you, know, you live on the boat you've got your, your your companies at your own and they're a bit jealous of that is that because they just don't have the the strength to go and do it themselves well i try to surround myself with other people that are extreme that are able to resonate with what i'm doing yeah, yeah. i've heard plenty of stories where people do extreme things but their friends don't do any of those right but they stay in contact which when you're doing all this adventure and stuff and you reach out to your past friends who aren't doing any of it, they can't relate to any of your struggles. If anything, they get kind of like, oh, you really, you're complaining type of deal. <laughs> so I try to just surround myself with extremes. So none of those issues show up. 
Yeah, I think when you get older, that becomes more difficult, right? The classic one could be example of your friends have got kids and you're still traveling around on the boat or doing a bit of traveling in Europe. Completely different paths there that you can't really even both relate to because you're in such different parts of the, the lifespan right of where you are. So I think that could cause a bit of, not problem, but yeah, you, you might drift away a little bit. Well, I am 30. You'll have to contact me when I'm 50 and maybe I'll have a different tune. <laughs> well, I'm 33, so I'm roughly the same age, right? But we, we are we are getting to that age now where if you have got friends that have been there for a long time and I'm not on the same adventure as you, they are going to be doing completely different stuff. But the problem I have is that, well, not, is that a problem? I don't know. I don't like people who say, oh, I'd love to do that. I'm like, well, you say that, but do you know? Because if you did love to do that, you'd do it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't choose the path that you've chosen to not do that. You, you know, if there's that that much love there, you're going to do it. It's quite a weird aspect when you tell people like, oh, I'm going to travel for six months. Oh, I'd love to do that. Well, just go and do it then. I've certainly heard, uh, especially with the Appalachian Trail, every person that you run into and you tell the story about walking 2,200 miles, they all say, that's my dream. And... <laughs> All the people that I would run into on the Appalachian Trail that were old because they started in February, so kind of the winter time where all like the old people were walking through the twilight of their lives, they would all grab me and be like, don't save it till you get older. That's the biggest lie that ever was. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Okay. And do you think like the, the top of my podcast, Winging It, is kind of loosely related to this, right? Just kind of go for it, go to flow take risks, take opportunities, be a bit, bit spontaneous. Like what's your thoughts on the phrase winging it? So my thoughts on the phrase are pretty much just go do it. And if you treat people with respect, you will get respect. And I think that by just going out and actually seeing the world or meeting all these interesting people, many doors open that aren't necessarily discussed as much when you start thinking about adventure and how many opportunities are missed because of a fear of going into the unknown, because that's essentially what it is. Winging mm. it is, you know, you have to survive in the unknown. Yeah. And I think the unknown can be different aspects. It could not just be travel. It could be like, I don't know, quitting your job to go and be unemployed for three months. That could be scary. But if you take three months off, and you wing it and you learn a new skill, for example, that could go on something else. Um, so how are you going to know if you don't wing it in a little bit and just take a risk? It's kind of where it comes from, really. Yeah, I've heard a bunch of stories of people that go and do these long distance hikes, because obviously I'm, I'm coming from that background. Mm. And a lot of people that will start a hike, they'll figure out a way in which they can take a six month period of time off. And in their mind, they think that they're going to come back to a steady job, the job that they were doing before. But through the whole course of that six-month journey, you've come to realize that you hate your job. You don't want to be going to the same place. But a lot yeah. of people will fall into the trap of going back to the same job because it is relatively easy to do. And I've seen so many people have major mental problems as a result when people go out on journeys i say quit everything that you're doing and 
essentially don't plan to come back, do something new. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. There's a stat that I read. I've said it on the podcast a few times, but I think 13, 14% of people would say they love their job. So uh, I think that I think the the bottom 25% would say they hate their job. They detest it. They do it. And you've got the people in the middle who kind of just like cruise through life because it's easy. But that's like, I don't know, 80 odd percent of people who either don't like their job or just getting through. But like you do 40 hours a week for, I don't know, US might be what, two or three weeks off a year if you're lucky. <laughs> that's a lot of time, isn't it, to do something that you don't like. like. How do people put up with that? Who knows? But as you can probably tell from the all the statistics on anxiety and mental problems, they're probably not handling it too well. No, because it is the fear of letting go of that job, right? Because it is probably easy and it gives you a certain amount of money per month or week. Well, I've, I've seen the, the tricking that a lot of these corporations do where I know a guy who lives on the boat. He has all the means to start his own business, but he won't. And he will keep coming up with all these different reasons about how he's going to next year quit and how the year after that he's going to quit. And these corporations will be like, well, if you stay in for one more year, we'll give you a $20,000 bonus. So they say, oh, well, I just need to wait till the bonus and then I'm going to quit the job. But by at that point, they're going to be like $50,000 bonus. You stay for another year. Yeah. It's like the, <laughs> I don't know, it's the right analogy, really. You know, you watch the Pablo Escobar series on Netflix, come what it was called. Um, Narcos, I think it is. I remember like thinking there, there's some people who just go into like that sort of world, for example, I'll just dip in, do a job, get the money, then leave. <laughs> but they never leave because they like get offered more and more money. It's like the same sort of thing as the corporations. Like they just offer you more and more and more. And by the time you get to 45, you're like, oh God, it's wasted 15 years doing something I didn't actually like. And what I've got to show for, I've got a house and a car and no experiences. That's for me, that's, that's awful. And then they just randomly fire you one day and just kick you right out. Yep. Yeah. Everyone's dispensable, right? Or disposable. Yeah. 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 No one's indispensable. You're right. And a lot of people do kind of run on that fear of not having that monthly income. It's a pretty damn shame. Yeah. Certainly because I live such a minimalist lifestyle, I don't necessarily feel that there's a ton of attachments that are on top of me, like burdening me. I sure yes. I got a car, but the boat already has a couch built in. I don't have a couch. Mm. I don't have any chairs. I got my laptop, got the mic. That's really all I need. Yeah. Really. So I can get up and go wherever I want. I don't feel like there's anything locking me down because if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club, oh yeah. All the things that you own end up owning you. Yeah. Absolutely right. I think debt is the modern day slavery. It is. Especially, especially student debt in the United States. How many people have, I can't really speak about Canada. So in the United States, so many people have these student debts that they're essentially forced into having to work a job. Yeah. Student debt is actually one that I don't see as a problem, but it's only from a UK perspective, because in the UK, the student debt is a government funded debt. So this doesn't affect your credit score. And it also doesn't mean they're going to come knocking on your door demanding payment. 
they just automatically take it when you earn the salary in the UK. So I have got a lot of student debt. Like I'm talking about, must be in US dollars around 50,000, I think, which for UK is a lot. Um, I'm not paid a penny back because I've not really been there. I'm not earning enough there. And I don't intend to pay any back. <laughs> but it's not going to affect me in like a mortgage debt, for example. Like they're not going to come knock on your door and take stuff away from you. Mm. But yeah, the US and Canada is interesting, especially US with student debt. I still can't get my head around it, but I get the impression that if you go to college, unless you pay for it outright, you are going to be getting a loan, right, to pay it off. Pretty much everyone is forced to have a loan unless you're exceptional at academics or you're brilliant at sports. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's the the double edged sword. And I've heard stories of people coming out with two hundred thousand dollars in debt, <sighs> and it makes you think. Well, you know, what were you thinking, right? Because <sighs> at at my level of business, you start to realize that where you went to college has very little impact on how people like perceive you, and. The funny thing about all these colleges is they try to say that the, the cost is so high because of the network that you can possibly gain from going to the school. Like if you go to Harvard, you clearly have a lot of connections, but unless you use the connections, it's totally worthless. Pointless. That is a lot of money. And you're right. If you got that off the bat, is there interest on that that as well? Oh, for sure. Oh, fuck's sake. Oh, oh wow. Okay. That's grim. That is pretty grim. You know, it's not like a small amount, like $2,000 for a phone. That is like 50, 100,000 US dollars that off the bat, when you're pretty much an adult, you've got to pay that back. And then I guess you're expected to buy a house, aren't you? Like, I don't know, 10 years down the line. Then that's a new one. Forever in debt. Yeah. yeah. Pretty scary thought. You talked about hiking earlier. Going to dip into that because you've done a few things here. The Appalachian Trail, for people who don't know much about it, what is that trail and how long is it? So the Appalachian Trail is 2,200 miles. I don't know what that is in kilometers. Miles is good. Yeah, we'll, we'll do miles. And um, it goes from Georgia to Maine. It's one of the three big national scenic trails in the U.S. You have the mm. PCT, you have the yeah. CDT, and the AT. The AT is a fairly rugged trail, and it's the hardest physically out of the three trails the other two trails are horse rated trails you have any uh specific you want to hear a good story about the Appalachian trail yeah please yeah go on because it starts in georgia and it goes all the way up to maine you run into poisonous snakes in the first kind of half into three-fourths of it and i have this death deathly phobia of snakes right so i started in february and it wasn't until i hit virginia that I saw my first snake ever in the wild, this giant timber rattlesnake. But I had been hearing the entire Appalachian Trail that when you get to Pennsylvania, it's where all the snakes are. Okay. So hiking along, get to Pennsylvania, I reach the top of this mountain, and my trail family is another mountain ahead, the group that I was hiking with. And they shoot me a text message, and I get this signal just for like an instant. And they say, get ready. There's a ton of snakes. And I get to the valley. I start having a panic attack. I can't do it. I can't go up this mountain. I've already walked 1,600 miles or some crazy amount. I can't do it. Can't make it up. 
pretty much get dragged up by the girl I was dating at the time. Get up top. There's this little note card at the top of this mountain, and it says snake with an arrow. And it's like pointing towards this snake that's 15 feet away. I give it a huge berth. The next thing we're in is these giant rock slabs that are like 10 feet by 10 feet. Because when the glaciers came down through the United States, they dropped all the rocks in Pennsylvania. And so that's why there's all these slabs of rocks. And it's about a football field long. I'm three-fourths the way through. And I go to jump on this other rock, and I hear the metallic rattle of a snake. And I'm like, oh, crap. I step back, almost hit the girl into a pit of snakes behind me. (laughs) As, As soon as I had seen the pattern of that one snake on a rock, my eyes just naturally just saw the patterns everywhere. They're all behind us, in front of us, between the rocks. I couldn't believe I hadn't even seen them. So the girl who has been living in this like fairy tale land where nothing could really hurt her. Mm. She was like, I am going to jump over this snake. Told her no way. Definitely don't do it. She runs, jumps over the snake, snake lunges and misses. And she gets to the other side of the rock, basically says, you can come with me or you can stay on this rock. So now I'm stuck on the rock between the only way I can go is over this rattlesnake and the rattlesnake. It never bites the first person. It always bites the second person, right? It snake knows what the plan is to jump over it. So I run as fast as I can. I look like air Jordan, probably the logo jump (laughs) over the snake. Don't turn back. Just run right across all the rocks, you know? And that was my snake story. (laughs) Rattlesnakes. So we obviously see them in films, um, but they are the ones with the tails at the back and they, when they rattle, what does that mean when they're doing that action? Does that mean they're ready or they're, they're scared? So they're just making sure that you know that they're there. A snake okay. can't kill you. It's not going to kill you unless you have some like conditions already. But what it will do is if you get bit by a snake, it'll be mm-hmm. like you're on tripping on shrooms but you're in extreme pain Uh, as your blood like coagulates inside of you or some crazy (laughs) thing so it won't actually kill you then it won't kill you but it'll mess you up right (laughs) okay yeah snakes petrify me i've only seen a few notes in australia but i don't think they're as hardcore as your snakes uh i saw one when i was walking to this head point overlooking the sundays on the east coast and it just, it was there. I didn't even look, I wasn't even looking. I was just walking and just skittled away in front of me. I was like, whoa, what was that? In a second, gone. But I don't know what type of snake it was. I was always under the impression that everything in Australia could kill you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They've got eight out of ten world's deadliest snakes and spiders, right? Wherever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A story that I have, spiders, is that when you go and work in remote camps in the north or in the outback, you're not allowed to wear flip-flops. It's a rule because the snakes and the spiders are just around the camp so you have to wear these boots and when you into like a cabin you take the boots off but you keep them in the cabin because if you keep them outside the cabin they're just like hiding the boot of your shoe so you just have to be like on wearing boots all the time wits about you and don't leave anything outside it's a pretty hardcore environment so Appalachian Trail you put here a very good comment which I do adopt 
but a much lesser scale. You put it's all mental. So when when my girlfriend gets annoyed at me about not training to do hikes, I said, "Don't worry about it. It's just mental. You just do it." Unless it's like a skill of rock climbing, or you got to do like I don't know a mountain face or something. Yeah, you got to probably do training, but like any walk or like trek up a hill, it's just mental. You just keep doing it because I'm like the most unfittest guy ever. You have to be pretty mentally tough to do that hike, though, right? I don't doubt the physical challenge, but the mental challenge must be maybe even harder. So when it comes to the long distance backpacking, a lot of people will point to the physical endurance of it all. Yeah. I mean, certainly it is a huge undertaking, but in the first month of doing a long distance hike, you're pretty physically fit at that point. So all the months after, for the most part, you're, you're good. You just get more and more worn down as time goes on. I started in Georgia and went to Maine, so I was northbound. But by the time I had hit New Hampshire, which was nearing the end, I was running into people that were going southbound. And the southbounders had this impression that starting from the north and going down was you run into the biggest mountains right off the bat. So I would run into these crummy southbounders (laughs) and they would say, oh, well, we just finished the hardest part of the trail. And I'd look at them and say, it's like this the whole way. Mm. And the advice that I got right before I hiked the trail, because I had never even been camping before. So everyone assumed that I was the biggest idiot in the world forever, even attempting it. One guy said, all you need to do is put one foot in front of the other and that you do it long enough and it'll make a journey. The AT was technically 5 million steps to God. do. Wow, that's insane. And how long did it take you to do? It was 172 days. But after that, it pretty much made me a legend in the eyes of anyone I talked to. And when I was even at law school and I was applying to jobs, people wouldn't care anything about how I did in school or what I even thought of the law, they just wanted to hear some Appalachian Trail stories. That's it. Every question went back to the Appalachian Trail. Is that because it's just that hard? Like, is that the only reason? Like, it's just known as a notoriously difficult end-to-end trail? Is that why? Certainly, that is the case. Um, A ton of people attempted each year, but the year I did it, I think 95% of people quit or some crazy amount it is in an exceptionally long walk you got to really have a reason to be out there if (laughs) if you're gonna attempt such a thing and what was your reason i had even though i had played sports and i had been pretty active within the community i set up two nonprofits when i was in memphis for people that had parkinson's i had done all these things and People had kept coming up to me saying, oh, you're doing so much for the community and all this other type of stuff. But I had felt like I hadn't done enough and I had my own issues of anything that really tested my character. Because for a while, I was under the impression that sports were the test of character. Then I kind of realized that that wasn't really that hard. So I just needed to do something extreme 
that if I was able to do it then, but I guess that's the explanation I give after I've hiked the trail. I think midway or during the trail, I had no idea why I was actually out there. And did your governor time complete it? Yeah, she did. We made oh, it wow. through the Appalachian Trail. We didn't make it through the boat together. <laughs> okay. I'd imagine that sort of trail and that trek is going to bring out some interesting sides of each person, right? Certainly. the We made it through the trail relatively intact. We had a few moments of anger and hatred, but the yeah. tip, if you're going doing any long distance backpacking with a significant other, is have all of your own separate things. Separate water filter, separate sleeping bag, separate tents. So you have the ability to just walk away if you get into a fight and not be like, oh, he has the water, so I can't really just leave whenever I want. When I got the boat, it was very much my idea. Mm. It was like, we're going to live on a boat. And she had agreed to it. And another lesson I learned is that your dreams aren't necessarily your partner's dreams. So you have to really be clear and come to a consensus of what you want to do or find someone that's into that type of lifestyle, which yeah, is exceptionally right. hard. Dating in the whole live aboard a boat thing, that's its own task. Right. You got on the notes here, be good at communication. So I guess that's relating to... All those things you just said. Well, communication is huge no matter what. And I try to preach it all the time. When you live these extreme lifestyles, it's very easy to think that you're a singular individual, that you don't need others, and you're somehow disconnected from society. But mm. everyone needs people. And I'd argue to say that the people that are total introverts that don't know anyone aren't very happy. And... If you're going to be trying to start a business that you're able to work remote, well, you better be exceptional at communicating because you have you have to start from scratch and build a business. And if you don't talk to people, if you don't know how to communicate effectively, that will severely hinder your whole attempt to go and work remote. Pretty much all the people I know that are solely remote that travel the world and are able to work at a place for like two weeks each time. They all have extreme personalities with great communication skills. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Communi I think communication is probably, I say, number one, but also underrated. I think in the in the normal world, if you like, I don't think a lot of people realize or even understand it to an extent. And what I mean by that is what to say, when to say, who to pick your moments, where to be risky with it, like. There's a lot to communication that I don't think a lot of people learn about. Because I have to talk about communication all the time. If you look at communication, there's a gazillion books out there. And each one of these books only plays a small part within the larger whole of communication. Mm. Within communication, you have like conversation framing, you have body language, you have how you dress. There's so many different aspects to it. But... If you're able to be successful at communication, you can pretty much almost do anything. That's why you've heard the stories of the con men who have somehow tricked people out of millions of dollars just by yeah. being able to communicate very effectively. Yeah. I'm smiling because my 
<laughs> my, my girlfriend finds it funny that sometimes on this podcast, and also I've got, we've got a mutual friend that who is here, he doesn't live here anymore. And I'll give you an example, like, I don't know, it's a real basic example. Like if I, if he asked me, oh, that, that dish you cooked for us, is it going to taste any good? Like, oh yeah, it'd be unbelievable. He said, the way you say things like that, when it's not true, is so believable. And it kind of relates to this podcast sometimes when like she's listened and we talked, I don't know, they say the guests have talked about a film. Oh, have you seen that film? Like, yeah, yeah, I've seen that film. Like, there's totally bullshit and blagging it. Like, just saying, yeah, because I want to be involved in conversation, but I've not seen like one second of it. <laughs> so you're always saying yes to things or claiming things that are not true. They believe you in terms of they think you know what's going on. I'm like, yeah, it's just like a bit of confidence, a bit of communication, isn't it? <laughs> Like, I don't lie all the time. I'm just saying there's certain situations where I just know how to like bullshit your way through it. For sure. Probably the meanest thing I've done with my communication skills and all my live aboard friends is one time I created a rumor that a flamingo, you know what a flamingo yeah, is? Yeah, I've seen him. Yeah, yeah. A, a flamingo was sighted in Boston Harbor and <laughs> people started talking about the flamingo. Everyone was like, have you seen the flamingo? coming up to me and after a month of this and i was hanging out with all of them i smoked a little bit of weed because it's illegal here yeah and i'm like oh you know that flamingo story i totally just made it up and you guys believed it they were so pissed they couldn't believe that i had lied about a flamingo and i was like <laughs> it was the most unbelievable thing in the first place what would this tropical bird have anything to do with up in new england and do you know what why are people so surprised about this? Because let's face it, our whole current, I don't get too deep here, our whole current system of economics, for example, is based on rumor and people making shit up. That's why the stock market goes up and down because when it goes up, there's a rumor that there's gonna be the next big thing, like the crypto is this, this one's next and people get on it and they put money into it. And then, I don't know, two months down the line, it's back down to where it was. Like it's all just rumor and people talking shit. That's all it is. So it dominates our social norms to a level that you probably don't even realize. I think if people really analyzed it, um, yeah, just kind of when out of communication really. But the question I've got to ask though, Appalachian Trail, you were kind of a key character. Well, you were a key character in the book. Whose book is this? What is this book? How did that come about? So the book is called, I only go North by Peter Kunst and Essentially, I had a trail family at one point that I hiked with for a thousand miles and the guy ended up writing a book. So I obviously had to be a yeah. central character in it. Is that a best-selling book or is that quite a well-known book? If I went back in time, I think I could have wrote a better version of it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but it, it does fairly well. It's got five stars, four stars. It's something that I can pull out at any time if I have guests over and then yeah. they say, oh, let me see the book. And I, nah, you don't want to read it. <laughs> the Appalachian Trail, if someone's thinking about doing it, any just like quick tips for people? Really come up with a reason why you would want to do such a thing. It does suck. <laughs> Two, <laughs> do not pre-pack all of your stuff. A lot of people have a tendency to drop mailboxes along the uh, trail yeah. to resupply, but people will pack in the beginning and they'll assume that they love Pop-Tarts, for instance. But 
by 200 miles in, they don't want to have Pop-Tarts anymore, but they're going to have Pop-Tarts for the next 2,000 miles. So don't pre-pack. And then, you know, third one, come up with something extraordinarily difficult to do before you do the Appalachian Trail to really test yourself. What I did is I made 1,000 origami cranes, which still to this day, I consider the, the hardest thing I've ever done. So I did that. Okay. PCT trail? Just going to quickly ask about that. Have you thought about that trail or have an interest in it? Well, with all of the different extremes, there's a tendency to not go want to go back to society and just live out the rest of your days hiking. That's not something I wanted to do. Okay. I saw a lot of my friends, they finished the AT and then they went back to kind of the same job, worked, worked, worked under the impression that they were going to quit, do the PCT, which they did. And then they would do the CDT. And then all of a sudden they're back to the same place that they were before and wasted six years of not figuring out. Because I think that at any point when you do an adventure, you have to be thinking in kind of a long term. How can I long term be able to figure out my job security in the future mm -hmm. or how I'm going to make money or if I want to have kids? So you shouldn't just go from adventure to adventure with really no plan besides doing the next adventure. Yes, that's what I've been doing in my 20s. Um, 100% work, I don't know, a job, mostly shit. Save money, adventure, no fallback, no backup, back to start, somewhere different, new job, that kind of stream of crappy job, save, travel, crappy job, save, travel, right? Whereas this time it's different. I'm like, now what can I do with the travels, but also maybe prolong it or even use it to make an income or do something, right? That's what's changed. Mm -hmm. Maybe that comes with age. I'm not sure, but yeah, you're right about that. Okay. And also the New England trail, don't know anything about it. So that sounds like a less hardcore trail than Appalachian. The New England trail is actually one of the scenic trails in the United States is like eight of them, which include the AT, the PCT and the CDT. The New England Trail goes from the coast of Connecticut to the Massachusetts, New Hampshire border. It's only 220 miles, oh, okay. but that sucked so bad. The map, because it was such a new trail, no one really had ever through hiked it before. So mm. it was one of the first people to ever do it. But there was no water the entire, there was no streams. It was no. all on this ridge line. And so it would go 30 miles, 35 miles with no water. It got to the point where if I hit a road, I would start walking down the street, banging on people's doors, asking them for water, which a good <laughs> chunk of them were confronted by this stranger. <laughs> yeah. So um, that sucked. And then I also had done it in the winter. I started in oh. October and I had never accounted that the sun went down at four or five o'clock. So as soon as the sun went down, it became unbearably cold. And then you'd set up your tent. You try to force yourself to sleep and you'd wake up at midnight, having already slept a ton of hours and not be able to go back to sleep. It was a terrible, terrible decision. I did it by myself. The first day I stepped on the trail, I even questioned myself. I was like, I hate the woods. I don't even know why I'm out here. <laughs> But I, but I finished it, you know, I fought through it, finished it. How long was that in total? It took 22 days. It was 220 miles. Okay. 
I did a lot of drugs. It was fun. It's kind of where I came up with uh, several of my businesses that I have today, just oh, wow. going out and then reflecting on things. Yeah. I think going out and doing these long distance hikes, you can listen to so much educational stuff. Yeah. A lot of people will put on music and hike and it's just like, oh man, you're wasting all your time. You could be listening to all these different books about business or different industries and then essentially come up with how you can enter into that. Yeah, I spent yeah. the entire time hiking the trail, listening to books and podcasts. So if anything, I thought it was like a fast track to getting an MBA. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I'd be tempted to do music because that's just what I studied at university. I'm just into it. But you're right. It is a bit of a waste. I'd probably do it for an hour just to get me going. But the amount of stuff you could learn. Oh, yeah. I think that's the same with just travel in general. If you're doing long-term travel, I don't know, you've got a train ride for three hours. God, whack on a business podcast or a self-help one, whatever it is. It's too much to learn. For sure. You put here lonely, though, so I guess you've done it on your own. Yeah, the NET was so unbelievably lonely. It was to the point of loneliness that I had called all my ex-girlfriends while I was walking. <laughs> I had this thought, was it me? Called him up. At the end of it, I was like, no, it was totally them. <laughs> so it all worked out. But yes, it was very lonely of a trail. Okay, that's great. I've got some quick fire questions about that at the end. You know, most important thing you packed, all this sort of stuff. I've got a random question here. A few questions about travel. Like, is it sustainable? So I guess it depends on what level of sustainable you're talking about. In terms of the boating side of it, if you think of sailboats, you might think that's relatively sustainable. But when I hear the word sustainable, the only thing I can really think about is like zero use, zero energy use. Mm. But that is seemingly impossible with everything, right? If you have an electric car, you're charging it with electricity that's being produced from a coal-driven power plant or... yeah. If you're on a sailboat, even though you have the wind, you still have a diesel engine and they haven't really found a way of making electric sailboat engines, really. So is it sustainable to a point in which you're using substantially less Earths than most people, but it's not something that's fully sustainable yet in my mind? And my next question is the purpose of travel. What is the purpose of travel? Mm. That's a good one. I think it comes down to experiences. And the more experiences you have, I personally believe it expands your vocabulary of emotions. That's something that you can't really get anywhere else. If you meet new people and you meet new cultures and you have all these experiences and these memories, you're able to express everything differently. People can read it off you. Yeah, community is probably arguably number one. 100%. Also, when you traveled on your boat, you mentioned before that there's like a community of you together now, like I don't know if it's in Boston or other places, but you, you know, you, you know, people in your like niche type of living now, right? So that is now a community, would you say? Well, it's certainly fascinating the whole boat life thing, because unlike anywhere else, you run into so many different cultures and nationalities. Everyone that's my neighbor comes from different countries. So even though I haven't traveled to other countries, I've experienced the individual and the culture of so many different places around the world. 
And then also being in Moraine, what I tell people is that it's not like we're landlocked with how we conduct business, but we're all connected by this one seascape. So I talk to people around the world all the time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've got a random thought. You know, like you mentioned a sailing boat and sailboat. You know, the first thing that came to my mind, I just, when you talk about there, is the OC. Have you seen the OC? I have not. No, it's not brilliant. But there's a scene at one of the end of the seasons where they all just have, you know, a bit of a nightmare and they all get fed up. And I think Seth just goes off on a sailboat into the sea <laughs> off California. He's off on his own. Like an idyllic image of him just like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to leave land. I'm going to get on a sailboat and just go off. <laughs> That's like one of the last scenes. I don't know why I thought of that. I've certainly heard those stories before where some person just gets sick and tired of it and then just oh, yeah. leaves. It's some incredible stories out there, especially in the, the boat world. I feel like you get a lot, lot of people that have reached the end of the line in terms of <laughs> what they were doing before. And they're like, oh, I've had the craziest neighbors. One neighbor... He got arrested by the FBI. He was robbing jewelry stores. My neighbor. And then another neighbor <laughs> got arrested not too long ago. It was all over Boston News. And the title of the article was Serial Entrepreneur. And he was a con artist. And he had conned millions of dollars from these investors in this pyramid scheme-like yeah. thing. So all the neighbors are crazy in their own <laughs> way it's because they're not conformed to the social norms like maybe they're not crazy maybe they're just a bit different right and um, people might listen and go oh yeah they're crazy but they're just not doing the same nine to five condo life right which we mostly do well being on the boat and being on the water in general the idea of laws is kind of strange oh. Yeah, right? because if you go out far enough, no one really knows what could happen. The general things that people think about in regards to like the police or laws or how to act civilly just aren't really existing in Marine. I guess it gives people the idea that, oh, they can do whatever they want type deal. But that's what I run into with my business, a ton of pirates and having to deal with pirates is a unique type of communication skill. How would you define a pirate? I would define a pirate by anyone who basically will swindle someone for material gain. <laughs> so I'll, okay. I'll, I'll give you a story, my own piracy. Yeah. I was driving this million dollar boat. It was this 40 foot power boat. We're flying through the harbor. It was some other guy's boat. And there was all these girls on the back and we go by this small boat that's way outside the harbor, but clearly they're having issues and they have these two oars and they're trying to row into the Boston Harbor. And we go right by them. The owner of the boat comes up to me, says, should we stop? I'm like, no, keep going. And then I say, oh, you know, maybe we should help them mm -hmm. turn around, go up. They basically say that their engine's screwed and could you throw us a line? So we throw him a line. I tell the owner to start driving the boat, drive it slow, and we'll bring him to his marina. So I go up to the back of the boat and I, you know, wave to the guy, get his attention on his boat. And I signal the digits to call me. So he calls me 
and I say, listen, man, I'm going to cut your line and you're going to be stuck out here unless you Venmo me $500 right now. And so he <laughs> Venmo, he says, oh my God. And he Venmo me $500 and I don't tell anyone on the boat about it. And we drop him off and they're like, oh, we did a good service. And I got back to the marina with $500. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> Piracy. Piracy. <laughs> Bloody hell. Okay. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> what choices you got? Yeah, yeah. You put here Canada sailing. So have you got anything in the pipeline in 2023? Planning on, because now I have a girl who's, a teacher so for three months of the year during the summer yeah no school and yeah. so the plan is to sail to nova scotia and then bounce Dream. around through maine plus i plan on going to germany at some point so it seems yeah. like a quite a a traveling year suffice it to say that i better get my shit together over the winter <laughs> And have all the businesses really moving. That's great. You mentioned Canada before we started recording, actually. You went to Montreal. How did you find that? So I had gone to Montreal to play lacrosse. And we were a high school team. So got up there. And obviously, being young Americans, we're like, the drinking age is 18 and prostitution is legal. So, of course, we went out into the city checked it out i mean it was pretty unbelievable i never experienced anything like it and it holds some memory deep down <laughs> but i haven't been there since i thought the whole area was quite beautiful i'm gonna have to at some point make a trip up there yeah have you been to anywhere else in canada or just just there oh niagara falls okay classic but yeah actually that's a good question or thought as a young american because of the drinking age is 21 I just assume in America, like people still drink when they're 18 because you get fake ID or you get someone to buy it for you. Is that not the case? Well, I think fake IDs have become a lot harder to really be able to uh, use, especially with all the scanners that they have yeah. these days. Yeah. And I don't know what kids these days are doing, but I could imagine that many of them are likely sheltered. So they probably <laughs> don't have too many of these drinking experiences. That's crazy. Cause you, you go to university at 18, don't you? In US, maybe 19. Sure. You can go and join the military at 18 and still not be able to drink. In the UK, if you go to university, that's basically the whole point. You just go drinking for about two or three years. Oh, I mean, certainly drank in college, had access to it. Yeah. But... It's just a bit annoying though, isn't it? Cause it's not like easy access. You have to like do a bit of admin to get it. You can't just walk down the shop and get it or go out for or go out to a bar. Got to have some communication skills to talk <laughs> yeah. to the older person to, uh, to convince <laughs> them to give you some alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right on that. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Okay, we're going to dip into your companies now. So the first one is ShipShape. So you are the owner, CEO. So what is that as a company? So ShipShape is the national directory of marine repair and refit so many people might be familiar with angie's list or home advisor or thumbtack and it's on the scheme of essentially a marketing tool we connect boat owners and yacht owners to service providers the thing i'll say is that technology is still in the early days and so a lot of the things that presently exist it's not a 
necessarily true that those models of how business is conducted is going to be the future. Yeah. So I think everything is going to eventually move to being more niche oriented. So you have the Angie's list and the thumbtacks. Well, soon there's going to be a platform that's just to find watch repair people, or there's going to be a platform that finds mm. couch repairs or whatever. Yeah. I so it. I think everything is moving towards that. So there is a lot of opportunity for people to jump into niches that don't have a lot of the technology that exists in the mainstream industries. So uh, yeah, have ShipShape and then Mita, which is the marine industry digital agency. We do web development, build platforms, um, market, all of that type of stuff. I quickly built a winning team right off the bat. And that's pretty much what has led to my success is just mm -hmm. being able to meet people. And my team is quite global. I have a ton of people in Pakistan, in Dubai, in England, in Canada, US. So if you have access to a global workforce, why wouldn't you use it? So I got that. And then I have the ShipShape podcast. And our goal is to try to create awareness of the ocean. A lot of people have never even seen the ocean, which is hmm. you know, interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah, And no one really knows what's going on. And being in a thought leader on my side of the industry, you see on the news all of these things that are happening with the ocean and climate change. But many of the people that are involved in the communication of, at that, that national level aren't talking about things that are even feasible to happen <laughs> or even know what the issue is that exists. So the goal with the podcast was to create an entertaining educational medium in which not only could we attract people that have never even seen the ocean, but we could attract professional sailors. We could attract people in the business of boat, boating, aquaculture, climate change. So we've been rolling with that for a while. Podcast has certainly afforded me to meet the most legendary sailors that ever existed, which is fun. Yeah, they're your fellow peers, right? In a different kind of way. You know, umbrella, you're all the same. You've got different factions yeah. down, right? Yeah. I mean, I've certainly heard people be like, oh, you should try to focus on your own niche with the podcast or with whatever you're doing. But in my mind, I'm like, nah, everyone needs to know about this. And my job is more of creating awareness than it is to find a little niche and then just fit inside a small little box. Yeah, I think the niche comes later, maybe. I think if you start out as a niche, I don't think that would work. I think you, you get into podcasts and meet people and you might figure something out two years down the line, like, oh, okay, we could go down that direction. You said something there quite interesting, actually, about the two things that I picked up on that. One, yeah, the idea that you are going to have technology that is so specific to things. Like, say, like, I don't know, how to get your couch fixed, how to get your purse fixed. Like, that could go really granular, which is crazy because sure. the options are endless. Like you just look in your room like, oh yeah, someone could fix that, that you don't know how to get someone to fix that. Then in the future, there could be like one app or one thing that would help you with that. Yeah, it's mental. And also the story about people never seeing the ocean. Real weird. Watched a podcast last night uh, about a guy who was wrongly imprisoned in Britain for a murder he didn't commit. 
and he was, I don't know, 12 years in prison. I think he was in there. But he grew up in London. So a lot of people in London are, you know, not the most affluent. So don't really go outside of London. And he's like, you know, grew up in London, stayed in London, got put in prison for 12 years, came out, was free because he got let go because he wasn't the person. And went on holiday for the first time on a plane at age 32. And he never seen the beach before. He went to Spain. He's like, what is this? Like beach, water, waves. Yeah, he just couldn't believe in the sound of the wave before someone like coming to attack him or something. That's crazy that people have not seen the ocean. That's mental. And also you publish weekly episodes. What platforms can we find you on? So we're on any podcast streaming platform. You can mm -hmm. find us there. And then uh, we just started moving some of our episodes over to YouTube, where oh, yeah. we're also starting to make a uh, a history series. Because who would have thunk that no one has in the past 10 years really come up with like top 10 shipwrecks or like top 10 battleships. So it's just <laughs> this huge untapped market where, you know, I, I tell people that they should get into niches and then be the champion of their niche. But because I'm a real Marine guru, I spend most of my day telling people that they should get into Marine because there is so much opportunity. Mm. What do you talk about on your podcast when you get these guests on? Is it just what they've done or do you have a common subject or what's the, the plan when you speak to someone on your podcast? So the beginning part is usually personal. And then the second part is more business focused. But the thing about Marine is that, as I had mentioned earlier, people just stumble into it. And so usually you have the craziest stories to tell about how you landed in Marine. And then everything about Marine is slightly, you know, extreme. So it's always a fascinating, engaging story. But the backdrop of it all is that to be a player in the industry, it's not who you know, but who likes you. And it's very cutthroat. That just makes it so engaging to hear. Oh, interesting. Cutthroat, is it? Hmm. Is that a problem? Because you don't get people on merit? I'm not sure. Well, in Marine, because I have I deal with a lot of other industries. I do go to networking events, and I'm considered a master networker just in general. Mm. That because Marine is almost entirely still word of mouth and requires you to have exceptional communication skills to do anything. Yeah. When I go and meet people from other industries, it's like I'm playing in the major leagues and I'm now in like, you know, the third tier rookie league type thing. <laughs> right. Okay. Who's the audience that listens to your podcast, do you think? Or who's it for, maybe? A good chunk of the people that listen to the podcast are CEOs, founders. We have a whole segment of people that are sailors, and then we have kids or people just thinking about entering into the industry. So it's a wide range of people. We've started to do some influencers. It, there's surprisingly a huge amount of YouTube sailing influencers. I would have never wow. thought it before. <laughs> that sounds niche. <laughs> I okay. mean, th there's over 40 of these sailing pot, you know, YouTube channels that have over 200,000 followers. They're making money off of wow. YouTube. And 
essentially all you need to do is be consistent and have a smoking hot girlfriend that can be the thumbnail of all the images. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how that is so effective. <laughs> I we did an interview with this this girl who was an influencer in in mm. sailing and she had 200,000 followers and she looked very pretty when we did the interview. I was like, "Wow." And then I'm on Reddit trying to post for the podcast and sailing and I type in sailing and I see your name un- first name underscore last name. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, she's really working hard to promote her show and I I can't believe she's going to this extent. So I click on it and the first thing that pops up is there's 3000 followers to this page and it's just they had taken screenshots from the YouTube from different revealing positions of her and then would just post it. I was like, I can't believe this, you know, but I guess you can, you can get followers that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can. The influencers on Instagram are just um, a bit annoying. Uh, The example I have, I used to follow someone who's a golf correspondent. She's quite pretty, um, very good looking, but she is supposed to be a golf correspondent. And I, I think she probably is in her real life, but she's also an influencer because all she ever posts on her grid is her just wearing some sort of outfit or wearing a bag and looking good. I'm like, well, where's the golf content? Like the Masters is on, like the biggest golfing event, and you're not even talking about it. You're talking about the bag you've got. I'm like, oh, this world is just get me out of it. So, uh, yeah, I have to unfollow because it's just a bit, ugh. Like if you're a golf correspondent, talk about golf. If you're, if you're an influencer who likes to pose and be like a model type thing, say that. Don't say you're a golf correspondent. Um, yeah, it's a weird, weird world. It'd be like me saying I'm a travel influencer and just like posting pictures of me with my haircut. <laughs> that people want to see travel stuff, right? <laughs> well, there's probably a market for that, right? <laughs> yeah, there probably is, yeah. <laughs> for websites, where can we find your businesses? So you can find the platform ShipShape on www.shipshape.pro and then Mida, you can find it on www.mida.pro. Got it. Thank you very much. I'll put the links in the show notes so people can access them pretty quickly. And we're going to finish with some, I'm going to bark some questions at you. Hey, yeah, just a quick one. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5. Or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with TeePublic where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as t-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast, and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcast, and other stuff. Thank you. Can you name three countries that you've not been to that are really like next on your hit list that you'd love to go to? Well, I really want to go to Germany. Mm-hmm. And then I want to go and check out Sweden. And I want to check out Iceland. Okay. For your hiking that you've done, what was the hiking boots that you wore? And would you recommend them? So the trick about long distance hiking is you don't wear boots. They'll kill you. You okay. Wear, you wear trail runners, sneakers. Okay, yeah. Yeah. 
because the the boots they're not really good at they're good at like keeping water out but they're not good at letting the water out of the boot when your feet are sweating so people could get trench foot pretty easily if they mm. have like the waterproof boots essentially you want to have something that can dry out relatively fast ah okay and in your backpack what was the one thing that was like crucial to your trip probably my tobacco pipe <laughs> and did you journal i tried to journal and so it's like fragments of like two weeks spread out and it looks like someone's descent into madness okay if you could do it now would you podcast a little microphone and like do like a little daily update and create a podcast out of it i don't know i've looked at a lot of the the trail hiking podcasts and i feel even with some of the youtube channels of the the trail hiking people eventually you run into a, a point where you're like, I just don't want to hike any more trails. <laughs> and, okay. but they've made like their whole niche off of trail hiking. So it's almost like they're forced into they got it. To do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I hear you on that. So I probably wouldn't probably wouldn't do it. Okay. Fair enough. When you're hiking, I know you probably don't want it anymore, but if there's a one trail that's maybe not in us, but maybe somewhere else in the world that you'd love to do. Well, the I've heard that the PCT in the United States is absolutely gorgeous. It's 2,600 miles and it goes through the desert. It goes through the mountains. It goes through the forests. I've heard that was spectacular. I just don't know when I would have another six months to just mm. mess around, you know, because at, at this point in my life, I'm like, oh, well, I've had a ton of adventures. I still want to have adventures i literally just turned 30 so like two weeks ago so i'm sitting there being like crap i did so much stuff in my 20s what the hell can i possibly do in my 30s that can live up to all those experiences mm. so but i i do realize that as i get older i need to have somewhat of a plan to make things sustainable i made a post online at at one point because I was so desperate to find a girl that was willing to sail way harder than you'd imagine. Mm -hmm. So I posted, you know, the photo of the boat, me about how, what the plan was. I want to go sailing. Any girls want to come on the boat? Oh boy. Did I get a bashing online? <laughs> Pe people were furious. You <laughs> sick son of a you know, and I'm just sitting there being like, I'm not a bad guy. And and there were either people that despised me or people that defended me. And I absolutely received no help. But one girl reached out to me and basically she says, oh, so what's the plan? And I was like, listen, I'm all about trying to figure out how we can sustainably be able to travel and mm. do this at the same time. So like, what do you have going on with your work? You know, how can you contribute in any way? And it seemed like she just assumed that you would have the money in order to be able to go do it. Got right. It. Yeah. Yeah. So, but in my case, it's very much like balancing being able to live comfortably and be able to travel at the same time. That right there is a dream. <laughs> that is for me anyway. Personally, that is the the goal is to have both of those and 
do both of those. Yeah, as we said before, still trying to work that out. Yeah, thanks, Mel, for coming on to the podcast. It's been a great chat. I've learned a lot, actually. Some of your stories are, are pretty funny and quite unique for the podcast. So I'm really excited to get those out there. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to when it's published. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode, as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website, jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels, and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.